Please turn with me in your Bibles to the 22nd chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter 22, and we'll be looking at the first 13 verses. Luke 22, verses 1 through 13, please give your full attention to the Word of God. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we, might eat it, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room that I, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Well, next Sunday is the first Lord's Day of the month, and so this, that is the week in which we at Oakwood celebrate the Lord's Supper. Reminds me of, as I think of it being a week away, it reminds me of a practice that the first church I ever pastored after I came out of seminary, what they would do during communion, they actually only celebrated communion four times a year, which is not nearly enough. But... One of the reasons that they only celebrated it four times a year is it was a much bigger event than what we tend to uh, observe in, in our tradition. They uh, would have actually four services in connection with the Lord's Supper. They would have a worship service on Thursday evening, a full worship service focused on preparing to come to the Lord's table, another full service on Friday evening, and then the full regular service on Sunday morning, and then on Sunday evening, they were a small church, so they were able to actually have literal table for a literal table communion. People would come and sit around the table and celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And so four services to prepare for the partaking of the Lord's Supper. They called them preparatory services. So that by the time you sat through four services, you were really ready and anxious, sitting on the edge of your seat, waiting for the Lord's Supper to be served to you. The idea was that you would spend the time that week, it would be, uh, you know, uh, almost a, a full week of thinking about ways in which you need to turn from the sins that the Lord would bring to your attention, that you would ask the Lord to reveal whatever sins that either you're not aware of or that you're not fully repenting of, that you might truly repent of sins as part of coming to the Lord's table. It would also give you an extended time to consider, are there relationships in my life that are broken that I haven't done all I can do to be reconciled, to be at peace with that person or those people? And to really take the time 
to focus in God's word upon the incredible grace of God that is revealed to us through the Lord's Supper, the broken body of Christ, the poured out blood that was shed to cover our sin. It was called preparatory services, and it was probably the closest things that we Presbyterians would come to a tent revival. You know, you'd have a guest preacher would actually come in. You'd have a different voice speaking from the pulpit, and it would feel, and it actually was a spiritual revival in a real sense. Well, we don't have any plans to implement that in the near future anyway. But it would be good for us to take a few moments today to consider how we can better prepare ourselves to come to the Lord's table a week from today. I think too many times I hear people say, you know what, I walked into church on the first Sunday of the month and I forgot that it was the first Sunday of the month. I forgot it was Communion Sunday and I just wasn't really prepared. So maybe we can be thinking about ways that we can better prepare to receive the means of grace. It's a very significant thing to receive that means of grace, to strengthen our faith and to prepare us for serving Christ. As we look at the beginning of Luke chapter 22, the Passover is happening. Hundreds of thousands of Jews that don't normally live in Jerusalem have come from all over the empire to Jerusalem to celebrate the most important feast of the year in many ways. It was basically two events that got combined into one gathering. It was the Passover and then the seven-day Feast of Unleavened Bread. So you'd have the Passover, and then followed by seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The whole thing was a celebration of, for the Jewish people of deliverance. It was all about deliverance, about God rescuing his people. It remembers, of course, how God judged the Egyptians by killing all of the firstborn children and the firstborn of their creatures by passing through Egypt and killing Egyptians and yet allowing a way by his grace for his people to be spared from the angel of death passing over by having a perfect unblemished lamb sacrificed and then the blood of the sacrifice being put over their doors so that when the angel of death saw the blood covering the household, the angel would pass over and not bring death to the Jewish households. Beautiful picture of God's deliverance of his people because that's what led to Pharaoh letting the people of Israel go from their slavery, oppression, and death in Egypt. After the Jewish people would come from that point on, after they would come together to celebrate the Passover, to eat the Passover meal, to sacrifice the, the, the sacrificial lamb, the, the Passover lamb, then they would enter into that seven-day Feast of Unleavened Bread where they would purge their households of any leaven whatsoever. Leaven was a symbol of sin. And so it was a way for them to express their love towards God and their thankfulness for his grace in delivering and rescuing them by living a life of repentance and obedience. The beautiful picture of the Christian life. We are saved by the sacrifice of the Lamb of God and we live to purge our lives of sin through his sanctifying work because of our love and thankfulness for what he has done for us. Well, in verse 1, 
it says, now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And you see there where they were so associated with one another, they kind of called the whole thing the whole Passover observance. But what I want you to notice as we work through the beginning of chapter 22, leading up to the last observance of the Passover that Jesus had with his disciples, what we call the Last Supper, I want you to notice the preparations for celebrating the Passover. While the Jewish people, hundreds of thousands of Jewish people, are, are preparing to celebrate that great event of deliverance and celebrate the Passover, which look forward to a much greater deliverance when the Messiah would come, the, the faithful disciples are preparing to celebrate God's saving work while the enemies of Jesus are preparing to kill Jesus. And I think Luke, as he's giving the account here, wants you to be struck by the stark contrast between what Jesus' disciples are doing to prepare to celebrate the Passover and what his enemies are doing at the very same time. In the first six verses, it's what his enemies are doing. In the last verses 7 through 12, it's what his disciples were doing to prepare to celebrate and worship. And the irony of the whole situation is, is that in a sense, both of them were preparing the Passover because his enemies were preparing to shed the blood of God's true Passover lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Against their own intentions, God was using their evil intentions to bring about the slaying of the true Passover lamb that would provide salvation for his true disciples. So let's look at what the enemies are doing first. The unintentional preparations for the true Passover that, that his enemies are carrying out. We have seen throughout, as we've been working our way through the, the gospel according to Luke, we have seen how the hostility and anger and hatred of the Jewish leaders has been increasing towards Jesus. And we've seen many cases where they were trying to trip him up in his words or trying to catch him in doing something that would break their understanding of God's law so that they could accuse him before the Jewish leadership and ultimately before the Roman leadership so that he could be put to death. During that, you know, until he came to Jerusalem, his primary enemies, his primary antagonists were the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees. Often it was the scribes and the Pharisees that were trying to, uh, to uh, arrest him, trying to catch a reason to arrest him. But once he entered into Jerusalem, it's a different group of enemies that stepped to the forefront. It's the chief priests, and that's what you see here, the chief priests and the scribes. Now, both groups, both the Pharisees and the chief priests needed the scribes because they were the lawyers. They were the ones who were experts in God's law. And so if they were going to be able to accuse Jesus, they needed the scribes to argue their case that he was breaking the law of God. And so, but it's the chief priests who stepped to the forefront here. It makes you wonder why. Why is there a change in the primary enemies trying to attack Jesus? Well, the chief priests were the ones who ran the temple. They were the protectors of the temple. They were the ones who enforced the rules of the temple. And they represented Judaism as it had become by the first century AD, which was a corrupted religion, not the Judaism that was taught in the Old Testament in the Word of God by the law of God, not that Judaism, but a legalistic Judaism, a man-centered Judaism that was a salvation by works religion, a false religion. And that's what they represented and that's what they felt their role was to protect this 
their idea of what the true religion was, which was actually a false religion. They also, the, the chief priests, were to some degree in league with the Romans. Whereas the Pharisees always spoke and taught against the Romans, the chief priests tended to be more friendly with the Romans, and therefore the, the chief priests in Jerusalem had more political power in, over the people because of their connection to the Romans. And so what we see in verse 3, notice what it says about them in verse 3. Don't they sound like typical politicians? People with political power. It says they feared the people. Isn't that true of politicians? They fear the people. That's why they say one thing and do another thing, because they fear public opinion. They fear what the power of the people to put them out of power. Uh, and, and so they feared the people. It's actually the third time that Luke emphasizes this. If you go back to chapter 19, in verse 47, it says, And Jesus was teaching daily in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. That's why they did not arrest him and try him the moment he walked into Jerusalem, because they feared the reaction of the people if they were to do it publicly. Then over in chapter 20, verse 19, it says this, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had, just, that he had told this parable. That's the parable of the, the wicked certain servants, the wicked uh, tenants who killed the son of the, of the owner of the, of the vineyard. So after he tells that parable, he says, they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Now here again, in chapter 22, he says, they feared the people. Luke wants us to understand that that's what's motivating their hatred and anger toward Jesus. This is still why governments and institutions and people in general persecute Christians. Jesus said, if they attack you, they're gonna, if they attack me, they're going to attack you. It's going to be driven by a fear of the people. Not fear of the people per se, but fear of what the people could do to them. The loss of power, the loss of status, the loss of worldly recognition, worldly approval, worldly prosperity. That's what these leaders feared. And that's why leaders are fearful of Christians even to this day. Because Christians say Jesus is Lord. In later, in, early, in the early church, why the early church was persecuted is because the Roman Empire Emperors would say to them, you must, you can believe whatever you want to believe, you can have all, whatever religious practices you want to have, as long as you will proclaim publicly, Caesar is Lord. And Christians said, no, I can't, we can't do that. Jesus is Lord. We answer to him ultimately. And obeying Jesus is what we are called to, even if that means disobeying earthly authorities. That's why Christians are scary to people in worldly power opposed to Jesus, because they can't control us, because we will die before we renounce the Lordship of Christ. So we're scary to them. That's why they persecute us. So why, you know, when you think about the kind of fear that the chief priests and the scribes had about Jesus and his followers, one thing that the scriptures do make pretty clear is that they were concerned about an uprising that Jesus 
might be. He might say, okay, I am the Messiah. I am here to establish my kingdom on earth. I am about to take a throne in Jerusalem, and I'm going to drive the Romans out, defeat all your enemies, and establish the kingdom of God on earth. A lot of Jewish people were hoping and expecting for that. And if Jesus had stood up in Jerusalem in that week and said, that's what I'm here for, that's what's about to happen, there would have been a huge uprising among the people, and the chief priests knew it, and that scared them. We know that because actually, if you go back a little bit earlier in Jesus' ministry, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, do you remember that the chief priests and the leaders of the people got together to say, what are we going to do about this? You remember what they said? I'll, I'll quote it from John chapter 11. It says, if we let him go on like this, if we let Jesus go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation." They feared the loss of their power and their place and their status if the people were to follow Jesus, whom they considered to be a false Messiah. They did not hear Jesus when he taught, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose his soul? If losing your place and your nation is what it takes to follow Jesus, then give it up. Because Jesus is the Lord. So, their whole hope of removing Jesus from the scene was to arrest him and try him and condemn him and kill him secretly. Secrecy was very important to getting this done. Because if they did it publicly with hundreds of thousands of Jews in Jerusalem and many of them following Jesus, many of them for the wrong reasons, but many of them looking to Jesus to be some kind of a Messiah, they feared losing their place in their nation, their status, their prosperity. So they had to do it secretly. How were they going to do that? Well, it's at this point that Luke tells us that they were given a gift. They didn't have an answer until it says in verse, uh, let's see, in verse 3, then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, called Iscariot, he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. Judas was one of the 12 disciples who never left Jesus' side. He was, they were always with him. They couldn't, I'm sure, could not believe that one of his disciples came to them at his own initiative and said, how can I help you arrest Jesus? They couldn't believe it. He could give them Judas could give them in secret intel to know when Jesus would be alone with his disciples, when they, he would be out of the public eye, where they could find him when he wasn't out among the crowds. Now, Judas wasn't a true believer. We know that because of how things play out in the rest of the Gospels. And if you're not a believer, you're vulnerable to Satan. If you're not a believer, only believers, only those who have been uh, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, who are filled with the Holy Spirit, who walk by the power of the Holy Spirit, can be sure that Satan cannot possess you. Because that's really what's described here. Satan entered into Judas and used Judas to accomplish his will. Matter of fact, we know it happened again later because when they were at the Last Supper, and you remember when Jesus turned to Judas, handed him the bread and said, go and do what you, what you feel you must do. It says at that point in John chapter 13, 
Satan entered into him, and he went and betrayed Jesus. Now, that's scary, that if you don't have the protection of the Holy Spirit, you are vulnerable to the workings of the greatest enemy of Jesus. The, the chief priests were only pawns in the hands of Satan. The Pharisees were only pawns in the hands of Satan. The scribes were only pawns in the hands of Satan, doing his will. Well, it doesn't mean that they weren't accountable for what they did. Doesn't mean that Judas, even though he was a pawn of Satan, doesn't mean that Judas was a mere puppet. He had his own reasons. He had his own sinful, unbelieving reasons for betraying Jesus. So what did motivate him to commit the greatest act of betrayal and treachery in history? Well, the Bible doesn't clearly tell us, but it implies a couple of things. First of all, it implies that he was driven by a, a love of money, a greed. We saw it in John chapter 12, where he complained about Mary pouring that expensive perfume on the feet of Jesus in an act of worship. And you remember he public, what he said before the other disciples was, oh, we could have used that money to give it to the poor. But John reveals what was really in his heart is that it says, John says he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. He was given 30 pieces of silver. What's striking is you know, that's actually not a lot of money. But to some degree, it was appealing to him to be paid to betray Jesus. So there was a love of money there. His treasure was in this world, not in Christ. But secondly, you also get the sense that he, was, he had grown disillusioned with Jesus. He had a different idea of who the Messiah would be, and he had a different idea of what the Messiah's mission would be. And increasingly, Jesus was not fulfilling his expectations. And so, at the end of chapter 21, you remember last time, the last few weeks, we've been looking at Jesus' prophecy at the end of chapter 21, where he said that Jerusalem would be destroyed by the Romans, and the temple would be destroyed. And you put yourself in the, in the shoes of Judas, who think he's looking for an earthly Messiah, an earthly king to establish an earthly kingdom and give earthly prosperity. He hears Jesus prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, and he says, what kind of a Messiah are you? That's not how it's supposed to play out. We're supposed to defeat the Romans. We're supposed to set up the kingdom on earth here. Now, again, we don't know for sure. The Bible doesn't spell that out clearly, but it's easy to see him following that same mindset that so many people who at first followed Jesus but then fell away because he wasn't the kind of Messiah and he didn't come with the same mission that they expected. And so he had to pick a side. Was he going to pick the Jewish leadership establishment and Satan, by the way, and go with his side? Or were they going to choose... Was he going to choose to follow, continue to follow Christ and trust him even though he didn't understand who he was fully and what his mission was? To this day, every single human being has that same choice. Are you going to believe in the false gospel and the false Messiah and the false religions of this world that are ultimately driven by Satan and his evil purposes? Are you going to follow Christ even in None of us fully understand who Christ is and fully understand his mission, but we can understand what he's revealed to us. But do we trust him? 
Are you going to trust Satan's plan or God's plan? Are you going to trust in the leaders of this world, the religious ideas of this world, the values of this world, the treasures of this world? Are you going to trust in Christ? Everybody has to make the choice. Jesus said in Matthew 12, he who is not with me is against me. You may think that you're apathetic towards Jesus. You may think that you just don't, haven't really decided. You're kind of in the middle. You're kind of neutral towards Jesus. Jesus said there is nobody in that condition. Either you're coming to Jesus or you're going away from him. Where are you? What says in verse 5, what's interesting, it says, Then they, the chief priests, were glad. And literally the word there is they rejoiced. They rejoiced that they had, find a, they had found a traitor among Jesus' followers so that they could arrest, torture, murder Jesus Christ. They were joyfully preparing to kill the Messiah, the one whose blood all the other Passover lambs throughout all of Jewish history had pointed forward to and foreshadowed. That's what the enemies were doing to prepare for the Passover. What about his disciples? Let's look at their preparations for what would be their last Passover and the beginning of a new covenant. In verse 7 and 8, it says that Jesus, on the day of the Passover meal, sends Peter and John to prepare that meal. Now, probably it was several hours early because that's not an easy meal to prepare for. It would involve finding a room and finding a room in Jerusalem that now has half a million or more Jewish pilgrims from elsewhere trying to find a place to celebrate Passover, let alone a place to sleep and stay. So they had to find a room. They had to make sure it's furnished appropriately. And then they have to buy and prepare the food for the meal. And if you know the Old Testament, you know that the Passover meal was very intricately uh, prescribed by the law of God, how, what was to be in the meal and how it was to be served. And so it was a complicated meal. It wasn't like a church potluck where you end up with whatever you know, and shows up on that night. You know, it's a well-planned out meal. And so Peter and John are about to leave, but they say, Jesus, where are we going to find a place? Where do you want us to go to look to find a place to, to observe the meal? And what's interesting is you may not have noticed it before, but Jesus gives instructions that are kind of like Mission Impossible, you know, spy operation instructions, you know. He, he says, when you have entered the city gates, you're going to see a man carrying a jar of water to meet you. Now, to that, that doesn't mean anything to us. But it helps if you know that in that first century Jewish culture, only women carried water in jars. Men carried water in leather pouches. And so to see a man carrying water in a jar would be weird to Peter and John, to anybody, any Jew in Jerusalem, because men didn't carry water in jars. Kind of reminds me when I first was married and figuring out what it meant to be out in public with my wife, sometimes she would want to go and um, try, on a pair of, you know, try on some clothes in, in the clothing store, and she'd hand me her purse. And you're like how do I communicate to everybody around me that I'm not carrying this purse? I'm only holding this because my wife is making me. And so somebody actually taught me the bunny ear method. Do you guys know the bunny ear method? It's where you hold the purse, the pouch down here, but you hold the straps 
right down next to the pouch so that the loop up here, they look like bunny ears. That's why if you're holding it like that, you, they know that you don't carry a purse normally. This is something foreign to you. And so if you can picture that in your mind, then you know what a guy carrying a jar of water would be to Peter and John when they come into the gates of the city. He's, that's not right. Something's wrong there. That's weird. Something's off. So when they see that guy carrying the jar, they are to follow him. And he will lead them to a house. And when they get to the house, they are to go in and ask the owner, do you have a place where Jesus, the teacher, they didn't use his name Jesus, the name Jesus is interesting, the teacher needs a place to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. Now, it's interesting, the question is always raised by commentators, preachers, teachers. Did Jesus prearrange that? Did he go and tell that poor guy to carry a jar like a woman through the city so that they would know to follow him? Um, and did he prearrange with the owner of the house that, to have that room ready? Possibly. Then you know, the scriptures really aren't clear. I'm not going to say I know one way or the other. But it does kind of hint that Jesus just knew it because he was the son of God. Jesus was able to draw upon information about the future, about, I mean, the plan of God, uh, you know, in his human nature, he was still able to draw upon divine omniscience to some degree. And so it's easy for us to believe that he knew what they, that they would encounter this strange guy with a jar, and he knew that the owner of the house would be somebody that would be amenable to the teacher selling, uh, celebrating the Passover in his spare room. But why did he give such cryptic instructions? Well, he did it to thwart Ju Judas's plan. Remember, Judas has already agreed with the chief priest to betray Jesus to the authorities. And so Jesus is with his disciples, and he could have said, go to 346, you know, uh, Galilee Street, and, and, you know, there'll be a house there, and you can, you know, it'll all be set up for you. No, he says, do it this way. So Judas had no idea where he'd be celebrating the Lord's Supper. Jesus was making sure that Judas would not betray him before he had this last Passover meal with his disciples. Now, he's not trying to avoid being arrested. He's not trying to avoid being tortured. He's not trying to avoid being crucified. He's in control of the situation. Jesus is orchestrating the events. He is making sure, just as he has through his entire ministry, that he doesn't do something or say something that is going to prematurely start the sequence of events that would have him crucified because he has parts of his mission that aren't yet fulfilled. And a very important part of his mission we're going to see next week was to have this last meal with his beloved disciples. He says, I have, when, he, when he sits down at that table, he says, I have longed to eat this meal with you. He was not going to let Judas or Satan Keep it from happening. And he says that to us today. I long to eat this meal with you when you come to the Lord's table. So, Satan thinks he's orchestrating the crushing of the seed of the serpent, or the seed of the woman. He's the seed of the serpent. He's hoping that this is his opportunity to crush the seed of the woman in Genesis chapter 3 in the first preaching of the gospel. But Jesus knows all He's sovereign, even over the actions of his greatest enemy himself, Satan himself. I mean, think about it. When we go through 
hard times, difficulties, face trials, sufferings of any kind. We Christians, faithful Christians, are quick to, to quote Romans 8.28. But realize that when it comes to Jesus' arrest and torture and crucifixion, Romans 8.28 applies just as much to that as, as to your small sufferings. Where it says that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things. He is sovereign over all things and he works all things for your good. For those of you who love God through Jesus Christ. And that is ultimately true in the arrest, torture, and crucifixion of Jesus Christ because that is how the Passover blood was shed for your sin to provide atonement. Jesus was never a victim of anything that happened during his ministry. Everything happened according to his sovereign, wise, good plan and it all centered around his saving purpose for you. John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. Jesus said, I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. And he does it for you. Maybe you've heard that uh, back in the late 1970s, uh, they found in an Egyptian tomb an old ancient document called the Gospel of Judas. Interesting gospel. And reason it wasn't, the content wasn't talked about is it took a long time to actually decipher what the content of the gospel of Judas was in that document. But it's one of several false gospels that were written well after the time of the apostles in the early church to try to present a different interpretation than the, the apostles gave us about who Jesus was and why he came. And what's interesting about the gospel of Judas is it makes Judas out to be the hero of the story. Judas is presented as the only one who really got what Jesus was teaching. And you have to understand the gospel of Judas, we now know, and the early church fathers rejected it because it clearly was teaching what was called Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a religious view that was based on Greek and Roman philosophy, which said that, that the material physical world is evil and we're trapped in these physical bodies, and salvation means to find the divine within and, and, and to escape these physical bodies into the pure spiritual realm. That's what salvation is, and usually through some kind of secret knowledge. That was Gnosticism, and this, it, were, it was Gnostic uh, heretics who wrote the Gospel of Judas. And so Judas is the hero because he was the only one who truly, in, in, in this document's idea, was that Judas was the only one who truly understood the teachings of Jesus. And in the Gospel of Judas, it says that Jesus gave Judas all this inside information, and then he instructed Judas to betray him so that he would be killed by the Romans, so that he could be released from his physical body. Judas actually saves Jesus in the Gospel of Judas. No atonement, no resurrection, no justification by faith, a false gospel. But I just want you to notice as you think about that, that this is just an early version of the culture trying to change the gospel message, trying to change Christianity to fit its values. And it's happening right now, all around us. Our culture is trying to change what the Word of God clearly reveals and teaches to fit its values, its treasures, its goals, its purposes. 
And it's driven by Satan himself. Jesus is the only one who fully understood on that day, the day of the Last Supper, he is the only one who understood what was about to happen to him and his crucifixion and his resurrection was the ultimate fulfillment of what that Passover meal meant. He's the only one who fully understood that. His disciples didn't fully understand it. They were wrestling, trying to understand it. But Judas rejected it. Judas rejected Jesus and went to the world to get what he wanted. And his disciples, the other 11 disciples, they didn't understand fully either. But you know what? They trusted Jesus. And they stayed with Jesus. And ultimately, they were saved by Jesus because of their faith in him. So as you prepare to come to the Lord's table next Sunday, all I'm asking you to do is to take some extra time to reflect on your own sin. Ask the Holy Spirit to shine the light of the word of God on every corner and crevice of your heart and reveal to you sins that you've not repented of so that you can confess those sins and be cleansed all over again through the blood of Christ. Take some extra time to ask, what are the broken relationships in my life? Who are the people that I'm not on good terms with and I haven't done all I can do to be right with them? Now, you, you can't be reconciled to everybody because it takes two to be reconciled, but there may be people in your life that you've not reached out to and done what you can do to be reconciled with them. Take some time this week because Jesus says, don't come to the altar to worship unless you've first gone and made peace with your brother and done all that you can do. And more importantly, take some extra time this week to reflect upon the meaning of the Passover. That we deserved eternal death for our sins. But the blood of the perfect, unblemished Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world was shed as a penalty to pay the penalty that your sins deserved. And it's because his blood covers you. His blood is over you is the reason that... that the, the, the judgment of God and death itself and eternal death itself is going to pass over you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the blood of Christ was shed as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Please consider these things as you prepare to come to the Lord's table next week that you might be deeply, satisfyingly fed spiritually by the body and blood of Christ as we meet with him at his table to be strengthened by grace. Let me finish with 1 Corinthians 5 again. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Let's pray. Father, we need to be fed spiritually. We need what the Word of God and the, and the Lord's Supper has to offer to us, which is grace and strength, that our faith might be stronger, that we might be more patient, that we might be more sensitized to our sin, that we might be quicker to confess sin and receive your grace, that we might be more motivated by love and thankfulness for all that you've done for us, that we might... Strive to be holy. Strive to obey your will. 
and to please you and to be a light to the world. Father, may this be a good week of preparation for us and may it be a joyous time around the table of our Lord Jesus Christ celebrating his goodness and grace towards us. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Let's close our service by standing